Hey crew, before we start the show today, I just wanted to say that this episode was recorded well in advance of the announcement that Patrick Stewart would be returning to the role of Jean-Luc Picard. So although that news is eminently relevant to today's topic, The Inner Light, we do not discuss it on this show. We are, however, open for business, if your business is discussion, on Facebook at our discussion group, Enterprising Interlocutions, which you can find by searching for Enterprising Interlocutions on Facebook or by going to Enterprising Individuals on Facebook. Why are the people of Catan so skilled with virtual reality? Will the inner light be revisited in the new Picard show? Why was a flute in the probe and not Cayman's shoes? Think about that one. I'm looking forward to a wealth of discussion on our Facebook group about the many engrossing topics present in this, possibly the best episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, The Inner Light. Don't tell Melinda Snodgrass I said that, but I think that's where we land on this show. I and my guest, Sarah Lynn Mishner. While you're listening, don't forget to check us out on Twitter at at E-I-S-T-P-O-D and check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash E-I-S-T pod. And with that, let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking There are some things you can't hide I want to know what you're feeling Tell me what's on your mind Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, a Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and I had a lifetime's worth of experiences beamed into my brain, including the love of a family and the acceptance of a community, only to have them stripped away forever, and all I got was this lousy flute. <laughs> I'm joined on this episode by Sarah Lynn Mishner. Sarah is a writer and graphic designer who contributes to Medium.com and the Huffington Post on feminist, cultural, and political topics. She's also the chief creative officer and co-founder of Bard Soap, and she's a frequent guest on Wired.com's podcast, The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Sarah, welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. It's good to have you. Permission to come aboard granted. <laughs> Today we'll be talking about The Inner Light, the 25th episode of the fifth season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Genre entertainment is almost necessarily plot-driven in nature. After all, strange new worlds aren't going to explore themselves, and it's going to take a lot of phasers and dilithium crystals to do it correctly. But Star Trek, in all its incarnations, has always been focused on examining the effects that Discovery has on the explorers, on us. And often the way in which a well-told story can change and edify the listener is a story unto itself. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Sarah, let's look at your dossier. How did you become a Star Trek fan? Um, I grew up on Star Trek, and it was one of those things that um, was incredibly formative uh, to the to the way that I was, uh, you know, the, the way that I was shaping. Because I was uh, perhaps unfortunately raised by conservative Christians, okay. and right. I, I, you know, it was just one of those things where I felt like I didn't quite belong my whole life, and. I was questioning always everything that I was being taught, but I was keeping that mostly to myself because I kind of understood that I would not be welcome to, to question that publicly. Um, and so Star Trek was, you know, this 
especially because I was homeschooled, I ended up watching it like five hours a day when it was on <laughs> UPN. Yeah. Like I remember I was very excited every time there was a new episode, but then I would watch and rewatch the old episodes constantly. Yeah. Um, and I think that my parents didn't really understand how subversive it was. I think if they did, they probably would have not allowed it. Um, I mean, you know, it, it, different in the way a lot of people uh, within Christianity or conservative upbringings are sort of, they're allowed access to different media based on somewhat arbitrary rules. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I went to, to school with a kid who wasn't allowed to listen to music that had words in it. So that means that he wasn't wow. allowed to listen to music from the 1950s. Right. Um, and so that was kind of their way of desperately trying to, you know, limit his exposure to the outside world. Um, and I, I think I just genuinely didn't, I, I didn't even know that Christians found Star Trek threatening until I was in private school and I had a teacher, I was using it uh, like a, a, a response or an example from an episode in an essay. And my teacher came up from behind me and kind of, you know, read what I was writing and said, now you be careful with Star Trek. Oh and I didn't God. understand, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't get it. And then I was like, oh, okay. And Star Trek really was, I think, one of the reasons why I loved it so much when I was young. And I love it now is that it was, it was everything I was being denied. It was everything that I was not taught to explore and not taught to think. Yeah. And so it was, I was starved for this, you know, separate experience that I wasn't getting from the way I was raised. That's, uh, look for an, a sticker in our Etsy store listeners. Be careful with that Star Trek uh, coming <laughs> soon. Um, wow, there are so many things that I uh, want to reply to or tracks that I want to go down conversationally. I think that I had a very similar upbringing, or it sounds like a very similar upbringing to yours, not the homeschool part though. And I guess the thing that I want to focus on uh, is that I wonder where that split or that divide began. I mean, we all know, and we talk politics sometimes on the show, so here we go. Um, we all know that there is a division in the country right now, but I don't yeah. feel like when Star Trek uh, first aired, it was seen as, sure, that uh, an element of the show was an expressing of these um, what you could think of as liberal ideals, but I don't think, yeah. you know, everybody watched it, uh, Red, Blue, Hawk, Dove, whatever. Um, yeah. And the fact that it could reach a point where and I won't guess how old you are, but when you were in school, somebody would say, mm, careful of that Star Trek. You know what that's all about. <laughs> I just wonder like, when that switch flipped. Uh, clearly, it wasn't binary. It was a gradual thing. But it's sad that something with such positive ideals is now seen as subversive somehow. Yeah, I mean, I'm 38, uh, just so that you're not okay. worried about wondering about <laughs> I'll get my calculator that. out. <laughs> <laughs> So I was uh, in like middle school, elementary school when uh, Next Generation premiered, mm -hmm. um, elementary school when it premiered, and middle school really when I had that experience where a teacher in a Christian school was, you know, telling me, ooh, be careful. So I think, you know, and, and I think that I, it depends on de various denominations. I mean, it's so funny, even within Christianity, it's such a salad. People just pick and choose what they believe um, there's no true interpretation. There's just everybody's true interpretation, right? Yeah, I wish they'd do that in the voting booth. I know, right? I mean, that's part of the reason why I, I kind of recognize the patterns. And I, I think, you know, I wish I've been thinking about this my whole life. What is it, what is it that started me on this journey of, 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 you know, rejecting what I was taught, rejecting this dogma? 
And I think it's unfortunately probably one of those things where, you know, you either have enough skepticism inside of you or you don't. But I'm not sure. I would love to believe that 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 there's that it's possible to learn how to be critical in critical thinking and learn how to how to say, wait a minute, this doesn't smell right. Um, <laughs> but I think it's you know it's probably different for different people. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of smell, thanks for the great setup. Please tell me more about bard soap. <laughs> uh, well, my partner and I have been making soap with swear words embedded inside. Uh, and it started as this random, like middle of the night. I think we had both been like smoking pot. And so we live in California, by the way. Sure. So it's like one of those things where we were kind of like talking in the middle of the night. It was probably two o'clock in the morning. And um, my partner said something along the lines of, you know, that whole live, laugh, love thing. Wouldn't it be great if something said live, laugh, love, fuck. And so... <laughs> We kind of, it, it developed from there, it evolved, and we started to make bars of soap with swear words, and the swear words themselves are made out of soap of a different color, so you can see through the soap and see the the swear word, but it, it does very well. We, we shipped like 200 bars to London probably uh, four months after we started. It was fun. Are your customers uh, just uh, personal users, or do you have, because um, I think that would be great in some... Um restaurants or bars would definitely want to have something fun in their in their bathroom like that. Yeah, I mean we it's funny, it's one of those things where some people actually find it objectionable and <laughs> we've been denied uh to participate in various craft shows because they're more conservative than they than they, you know, lead on to be like <laughs> uh, we're actually denied uh from the uh what is it called? It's something like a rebel uh, craft show, which is funny because they were the least rebellious that we've ever encountered. Like a lot of family friendly craft shows are like, Oh yeah, no problem. This is California. Nobody cares. Um, but some people just get really hung up about the swear words. And for us, swearing is a fascinating concept. I mean, we're talking about a word that's 500, 600, 700, probably older than that years old, the F word. And we, it still has this power, which is fascinating to us. Right. Um, and people have asked us, you know, well, why don't you have a C-word soap? And we're like, well, we don't really want to have any gendered swear words that can be used negatively. Um, we want to, you know, keep it positive. So Right. Uh, and a portion of your profits go to a rotating selection of nonprofits that, is, that support equality, reproductive rights, and right. uh, other things, right? Yeah. So you can clean your body and your soul at the same time. Yeah. Lately, it's been literally like it's been difficult for us to, to, to decide where it should go because there's so much crazy stuff happening right now and so many great new movements and new organizations forming. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, by the way, I want to talk to you about my idea for a line of Trek-themed cleaning products called Star Wipes. <laughs> we'll see where that goes. Oh, dear. Uh, I want to ask you what you thought about Star Trek Discovery, um, and then I immediately want to go into discussing the online fan response to the show. Oh boy, it's my favorite topic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I loved it. I mean, I I absolutely loved it, and I I loved it from the beginning. I think I understood that. I kind of thought, okay, well, some of this stuff seems a little strange, but I trust it because I know that the writers have been involved with Star Trek their entire lives. Yeah, 
And it's amazing to me the, the hubris of a lot of these people online who are like, oh, these writers don't know anything about canon. And I'm like, they literally hired an army of Star Trek specific fact checkers. You know, I mean, have you not read about it? Like, did you just turn it on vaguely and, and, and just sort of casually watched it? And it's just amazing that people think that they know more, you know, than the Rick Bermans of the Star Trek world. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> um, maybe not a great example, but I understand exactly what you mean. Uh, I just think that people don't think about it. I think that if people could really be... Um, have you read uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series? Yes. Um, the part where uh, Zaphod goes and he goes, he gets put into the machine, the name I can't remember right now, but it uses a piece of fairy cake to show you just how infinitesimally small you are, like in the universe. Yes. I think yes. that if pe people's minds would explode uh, if they went into that, I think that people just don't think about it. Um, I think that if, if you confronted them somehow in a way that they would listen for two seconds about how ignorant they're being, they would yeah. certainly withdraw. But they just don't. It's just yelling down a hole for a lot of people, I think. Yeah. And it is it is really, really frustrating. I think there is I'm hopeful that something will emerge from where the Internet is right now. I mean, I love Internet culture. I, I'm defending it all the time. I think it's great. I love that, you know, through the Internet, we come up with new words every day. Sure. But I, it is also it can be incredibly toxic. And I think there are patterns about, you know, with the way that we use social media that are, uh, you know, kind of user experience problems that tech companies, for whatever reason, seem to think are just inherently human nature. And they don't, they haven't really thought, hey, we can actually figure out how to, how to solve this. Mm -hmm. And I, I think they should be working on that. Um, so it's, it's frustrating, but I have hope that, you know, maybe because I'm a humanist, I have hope that we will figure out the social media problem and figure out a platform that, that encourages people to be a little bit slower with their responses. Yeah. Would well, you think that this is maybe a bad idea, but Facebook is talking about uh, having a dislike button or bringing back a dislike button? Oh, I think it's a wonderful idea. It would be give people a chance to just say, uh, no, and then just move on instead of getting caught up in this. Yeah. Here, there's my 14 point plan as to why this is wrong. Yeah. Because there's so many things that people post that I disagree with and I just do not want to get into it. And for whatever reason, people feel like they need to have kind of the last word, Oh, absolutely. you know, <laughs> yeah. and it's, it's like, I don't, I mean, so, you know, my whole rule personally is if I disagree with somebody, I try to limit it to five comments if it's on somebody else's wall. And it's kind of, I call it the get off my lawn rule because <laughs> when you're on somebody else's lawn yeah, right. and continue to push your point, it is incredibly rude because maybe the other person doesn't feel like defending it, right. you know, to the nth degree for nine hours. Like it's, it's just, it's really ridiculous. I would love a dislike button. And I know, I know, I understand the arguments against it. I, I know that people are worried about bullying and everything, but that happens anyway. So let's make the technology better and more specific. That human instinct to weigh in, at least you can, uh, Captain Picard wouldn't weigh in at all. He would just move on and sipping tea, uh, <laughs> but at least give us weak humans in the 21st century, just that little click of a dislike that would scratch that itch and then we can just move on yeah yeah exactly i'm glad you mentioned toxicity because it's something that i've struggled with um in my own uh, criticism uh with reviews and whatnot online and even with this show is that i that's kind of like my uh google don't be evil rule is that i'm trying not to be toxic as much as possible and i don't feel that criticism 
uh, or even being just kind of negative, like negativity doesn't have, it doesn't have to be toxic. I'm not saying that we all need to hug each other all the time, but it's like the relentless contrarianism and the personal attacks, um, especially in like with discovery or even with, uh, the last Jedi or black Panther, um, and I'll even, you know, I'll even bring in something like Bright on Netflix, which I did not enjoy, uh, or the DC Universe films. Um, people, you know, it's just this polarity of it's garbage or you're garbage. And, right. you know, fanboy shade is nothing new to the Internet, but I just wish that we could, you know, drain that toxicity out of the uh, dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. But who knows if we can or not. Why did you choose this specific episode, The Inner Light, to discuss today? Uh, it's my favorite episode, and <laughs> I was actually surprised that it hadn't been taken yet. It's such a rich, fulfilling... I think people are scared of it. <laughs> no, seriously. I think that they don't know what to say. I think we all feel that way. Aw. <laughs> it's a reverence. It's wonderful. It is It is absolutely my favorite Star Trek uh, episode of any of the series combined. Do you think that it is a thinking person's star trek episode because i was looking at the rankings and everybody always says they like this but if you look at like the objective lists you know best of both worlds uh yesterday's enterprise which are both kind of shooty episodes always make uh the top of the uh, like top 10 lists for tng and uh best of both worlds is on tv guides best 100 tv episodes ever uh list and inner light isn't but this is more important and i think a lot of ways better uh, in my mind Well, and Best of Both Worlds has a lot of action in it. It's yeah. going to be more appealing to a wider variety of people. And frankly, Best of Both Worlds is of better quality and is more interesting than some of the movies that came out featuring the TNG cast that felt more like episodes, you know, like Insurrection. Uh, <laughs> right. And, you know, it's kind of like, so yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense, but it's funny because it's funny you said that Inner Light is kind of the thinking person Star Trek episode because until the Discovery kerfluffle, I genuinely believed that most Trekkies were thinkers. And then I had to like, you know, vastly step backward from that and think, oh God, that isn't, uh, nope, that that was just me being optimistic. I had no idea that, you know, this contingent of Star Trek fans existed right. who were, you know, super conservative and against, you know, <laughs> diversity and stuff like that. So these are Star just, Wars fans. Where did yeah. they get in here? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, as somebody who writes criticism of pop culture online, do you find it difficult to be objective about things that you just flat out enjoy? Yeah, actually, I was accused of this, uh, the opposite of this last night, because I was talking about Lady Bird and I just didn't like certain things about it. Hmm. Uh, and people sort of, a couple of people just sort of jumped down my throat and I was accused of. What's funny is, I mean, this is sort of a summation of the internet, right? I literally said, I don't like Lady Bird, but I think I don't like it for personal reasons. Hmm. Although this article here explains what, what, you know, critical reasons I also had against it. But somebody was like, well, you're, 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 you don't like it for personal reasons. And I'm like, I literally said that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's just sort of, it happens a lot online where you preface something to the nth degree, because you're like, all right, I'm going to head off any people who are going to be, who are going to be upset about this. And then they literally say the very thing that you said. And you're like, ah, but it, it happens a lot online. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, that I don't think that the job of the critic is to necessarily see art as 
as objectively as possible. I think the job of the critic is to understand what their personal response is critically and what their personal response is personally. You know, to be able to separate those two and understand where that's coming from, I think that's a much healthier way uh, to be a critic. That's a great way of putting that. I had an experience uh, recently like that with Black Panther, which, um, like everybody, uh, I really loved a lot. But yeah. as I sort of thought about it more, I was like, it's kind of just like the first Thor movie. <laughs> like it's, I think it's fantastic in the way that it uh, has the black protagonist and, and cast, and it's introducing Afrofuturism to a mainstream uh, audience. Uh, and the central conflict is an I- ideological one and not like a blue laser thing. But yeah. it pretty much follows that same Marvel template that they all do. And people are calling it so revolution revolutionary. And I think that it added some of the best bits and bobs to that Marvel framework, but it's kind of still, still the same thing. I would have liked to have seen uh, Kugler take it in um, some like weirder kind of uh, uh, stranger ways. Um, yeah. But it's still, you know, it's totally enjoyable, but I'm kind of sitting back and going, I'm trying not to be like bitter and, and toxic and no human hates to be outside of the pack, but <laughs> but I usually just don't say anything uh, when I feel that way. Yeah, I think that, that Marvel's job is to actually keep doing what they've been doing, but each time they do it, add something new, you know, try to take as fresh of a take on it as they can. I mean, yeah. if if they deviate too far away from what Marvel is, they're going to lose their way. It 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 is it, it occupies a very specific space in the pop culture stratosphere, and you know, people love Marvel for what for what it is. Uh, so I I do think that you know that they succeeded in Black Panther precisely because they made you know it uh, Thor with with mega representation because, (laughs) you know, especially I, I have so many, you know, black nerd friends and this means a great deal to them because it's never happened before. And it's sad. It's so sad that it's never happened before. So it's about freaking time. Absolutely. Uh, well, this is a Star Trek podcast. So back to Star Trek. Uh, (laughs) We are talking the Next Generation episode, The Inner Light. Uh, it is the 25th episode of the fifth season of TNG. It first aired on June the 1st of 1992. The teleplay is by Morgan Gendel and Peter Allen Fields. Fields was a writer or a contributor to 13 episodes of TNG and DS9, and he served as an executive script consultant for TNG and as a producer for DS9. The story is by, again, Morgan Gendel. Gendel also wrote the sixth season episode, Starship Mine, and he wrote two episodes of DS9. He's also a TV producer with many credits to his name, including the Dresden Files and the 2003 Spider-Man cartoon series, which he also wrote for. That was the one starring the voice talents of Neil Patrick Harris. This episode was directed by Peter Lauritsen, who is a producer and supervising producer for all four post-TOS pre-discovery shows uh, at one time or another, and he was a co-producer on all four TNG films. And his role was mainly one of visual effects and post-production, and The Inner Light was his first directing credit. He, he would go on to direct Gambit Part 1 for TNG and Lineage for Star Trek Voyager, as, working, as well as working as a second unit director on First Contact and Insurrection. The start date for this episode is 45944.1, and your assignment, Sarah, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of The Inner Light. Oh, good times. Um, okay, so a probe uh, is encountered by the ship. The probe somehow knocks Picard unconscious. Um, Picard lives an entire lifetime on a different planet as a completely different person, and then 
wakes up on the ship, 20, 25 minutes have passed, and he has to now reckon with the entire lifetime that he spent as this other person. Um, and we find out that uh, the whole reason that that happened is because this world actually died a thousand years ago, and this was this culture's way of being remembered. Right. It was a message in a bottle. Yeah. Uh, is there a Trek episode? There must be a Trek episode named Message in a Bottle, now that I think about it. But anyway. There has to be. <laughs> uh, that is a good summary. Uh, here are some interesting facts from our memory banks about this episode. The title of the show comes from the Beatles song, The Inner Light. Uh, and apparently, as an inside joke, the writer Gendel wanted all of his scripts to have the titles of Beatles B-sides. Uh, <laughs> Inner Light, of course, was the B-side to Lady Madonna. When he later wrote Starship Mine, he wanted to title it Revolution, but there was already an episode of the show called Evolution, um, which is the Wesley Crusher Nanites one, I think. But I would have traded that for Revolution, no problem. <laughs> Not a great episode. Uh, series composer Jay Chataway wrote the music for the episode, including Cayman's flute solo. The piece was later expanded into an orchestral suite for the best of Star Trek Volume 1. And I've heard the tune compared to the Sky Boat song, uh, the Scottish song, uh, and an adaptation of which is the theme for the series Outlander. I don't know if you've heard that theme. Um, oh, yes. I don't know about that, but it... I mean, it definitely has a Celtic lilt to it. Yeah, I mean, it's such a wonderful sort of folksy, sad, totally believable, totally perfect for the world that they invented. Yes. If I could play uh, the tin whistle or the flute, I would learn this song and then I would go and busk. I would just, you know, go on a street corner and play this as people walked by and see if they got a little freaked out like they were in another reality or I'm, if they I'm computer and sure program <laughs> there have been cosplayers that showed up with a flute with a little you know metal silver flute sure and we in a card costume and have performed this song yeah absolutely um <laughs> speaking of the flute the flute would reappear in the sixth season episode lessons when he plays it for nella darren and it was featured in a cut scene from Star Trek Nemesis. Uh, he is talking to Data in his ready room aboard the Enterprise, and we see the flute. Because this episode covers a long span of time, old age makeup was used not only on the main performers, but on some of the extras and townspeople as well to convey the passing of time in this community. Uh, this episode was nominated for an Emmy for its makeup. Patrick Stewart, of course, wears old age makeup in this episode. And I'm not sure how old uh, Cayman is supposed to be by the end of the episode, but wow, did they get wrong what Patrick Stewart would look like in 30 years? Not necessarily, because I feel like Cayman, you know, when his wife died, he was still relatively young looking and then, That's you know, true. managed to. So he might be like 100. He might, you know, be like 30 years older than than Patrick Stewart is in 2018. That's possible. Yeah. I'm wondering how old his kids would be then. But, <laughs> um, you know, I guess uh, or they, you know, there's a lot of sun damage on their planet. So who knows? Yeah. Um, and they had no idea that they were, you know, doing makeup work on an ageless Time Lord who's rejuvenated right. by universal acclaim. <laughs> and weed, I guess. I guess he smokes a lot of weed. I don't know if you've seen his uh, his Instagram account. But yes. once I learned that he, he took uh, a lot of marijuana for pain management, it suddenly all made sense to me. Yep. Um, I actually watched a panel from the Vegas convention last year, and both Patrick Stewart and Margot Rose were on it, and they both look incredible. So they're doing something <laughs> right. And speaking of Margot Rose, she appears as Aline in this episode. Uh, she's had a prolific career on TV. She's been in over 60 episodes of various series, various series and she's a musician and a composer herself. Um, I thought this was fascinating. She also appeared in the Deep Space Nine fourth season episode, Hard Time, which is the episode in which Chief O'Brien goes through an experience similar to that of Picard's, 
Uh, he has the experience of a 20-year pre- a prison's experience implanted in his mind. Yeah. So I don't know if that was a little in-joke from the casting department, but it was kind of a neat thing. Richard yeah. really appears as Bataille in the episode. Uh, he's a prolific character actor, and he's definitely high on that, on the, um, hey, it's that guy list, you know, when he's <laughs> sporting his uh, signature mustache. He's had a myriad of TV appearances. He's also been on Voyager and Enterprise, and he's been in films like Glory, Free Willy, Office Space, and Casino. And playing Cayman's son in the episode is Daniel Stewart, son of Patrick Stewart. This was Daniel's first American TV role. And he doesn't have too many credits to his name, but he does uh, appear as the son of main character Walter Blunt on the Star series Blunt Talk. And Blunt is, of course, played by Sir Patrick Stewart. And finally, this episode won the Hugo Award in 1993 for Best Dramatic Presentation, joining The Menagerie, City on the Edge of Forever, and All Good Things as Hugo winners. Ah, boy. So now we're at that point. Um, I called out other people and their possible fear, but we're at that point for me where now I have to talk about this episode (laughs) and uh, possibly um, uh, critique it, you know, honestly, although it is one of my favorite episodes. Patrick Stewart has said that it is his favorite episode. Uh, I think it's Will Wheaton's favorite episode. Um, Michael Piller named it as one of his favorite episodes. Entertainment Weekly said it was number three on its top 10 TNG list. So... Clearly, it it has a claim, and it's been remembered um, by a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I, for myself, I think a lot like Picard slash Cayman or Picayman. Uh, I don't know if that works as a portmanteau, but uh, I needed time to mature into the right mindset for this episode. Um, having seen it probably on UPN or in syndication when I was young, I remember mocking it as... Oh, it's it's the flute one. Yeah, I remember that one. Um, and I don't think I actually had sat down and watched it uh, with a critical and adult eye. Um, was it like it that for you? Like, what did you first see it and what was your first reaction to it? Uh, well, I, I mean, the episode aired when I was 13. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, this is what I love about Star Trek is that it's such a thought-provoking episode. And when you're 13 you're just starting to kind of understand broader concepts. And so it is mind blowing to a 13 year old. Yeah. Uh, it's mind blowing to an adult as well, but it's, you know, you, you just, I mean, I remember it made me cry when I was 13 and every time I watch it, it makes me cry. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just incredibly profound. You are a more sensitive 13 year old than I was uh, <laughs> <laughs> because for me it was, probably wanting to get back to the Borg and just watching this and going, oh boy, I don't want to watch. And these people wander (laughs) around a La Quinta Inn in Sedona, you know, and like look through telescopes and stuff like that. But yeah, Yeah. now, now I'm on the same page as you. Uh, In preparation for this show, I was looking for scholarship articles and analysis online. There's actually not a whole lot. Um, I was surprised that I didn't see more Den of Geek articles or, or some such. You know, there's not a lot of analysis and the YouTube videos you can find are just you know, an adenoidic guy saying it's good. You know, it's, I mean, people don't seem to really be digging much into um, analysis of the episode. Well, that's, that sounds like an invitation to me. I was going to yeah, start the clock. Here we go. <laughs> right. Uh, and just immediately following up on that comment, uh, I think in a lot of ways, this is a story about storytelling. Yeah. And, and I think that going back to my commentary about commentary, um, I thought that the meta nature of that would be attractive to today's internet. We're, we're one medium post away from this thing blowing up all over again. 
I can make that happen. I will okay. do my best. <laughs> All right. I'll check back <laughs> with you to make sure you did. I just, I, you have to sort of, you know, per medium format, you have to tie it into today's events, which is actually pretty easy to do, given that one of the things that's cool about the inner light is that a lot like the original series movie, The Voyage Home, which is incidentally not just my favorite Star Trek movie, but my favorite movie of all time. Oh, wow. uh, you know, it has that sense of this is what happens when you let your world die. And 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 yeah. this is a very important lesson for America in 2018. Okay. Uh, you know, I mean, we are denying climate change politically, uh, even though it, you know, our scientists and our our uh, our fellow Americans uh, believe in it. We have, unfortunately, managed to elect a, a bunch of people who, who are flatly denying it. And um, we are headed to destruction if we don't figure something out. And uh, so this is one of those stories that is incredibly, or feels, every time you watch it, it feels like before it's time somehow. Okay. And I feel that same way when I watch The Voyage Home. Um, but you know, it, it has that sense of um, watching the civilization, watching people in the civilization respond to the impending doom in various ways, including with a lot of denial, a lot of trying to shut shut down the truth because it scares people um, and not a lot of figuring out how to solve the actual problem. I mean, you know, the, the character, you know, Kamen's uh, character does invent something. Um, I forget what it what it's called, but he, he he's actually trying to to fix the science here. Yeah, and he's just kind of being, oh, you know, we don't want to do that. And <laughs> yeah, he he yeah. invents like um, okay, we got to go back to the other franchise, but it, it sounds like <laughs> evaporator. Like he wants yeah. to uh, take uh, moisture from the atmosphere. Yeah, it's funny that you bring up the reaction of um, the government or the administrator is the face that we see of the government. And at first, yeah, they're like, ah, oh, don't worry about that. And later on he comes to him and he says, yeah, we know about this. Um, and we don't know what to do. And so we're not telling anybody. And that yeah. kind of, that kind of apathy is so strange. Usually you'd have, um, like a Jor-El situation. You know, he, he discovers something about the planet. He comes to the ruling council and they tell him he's crazy. And then the planet explodes anyway. Um, yeah. and, we don't have that. It's just this sort of, yeah, kind of shruggy sort of thing. And I wonder if that is something about the um, Catanians that we that we don't really d dig into. Something about their their ways or just how they are as a people. Um, th they say they have this um, parting sort of phrase that they give each other, which is like "go carefully." Yes. Uh, when they when they leave each other, and I don't know if this is commentary or I'm just really digging into this, but there's that, of course, that famous speech. Uh, later on in the episode where Picard is talking to his daughter and he's saying, live right now, you know, do it. Uh, yeah. You want to study science? Uh, you want, you just want to get married? Just, just do it. And it seems like, you know, he is leaving the path of normal Catanian <laughs> sort of thought at that point. And I'm not sure this gets into a bunch of stuff I want to talk about later about the purpose of the simulation, but it seems like that's the message that the Catanians wanted you to know about them is that they were one way and that you should be another way. Don't be like us. Yeah. Yeah. I think they were very much like, well, don't, don't disturb the peace. And that was <laughs> yeah. sort of a central ideology of their society. And so of course, when something catastrophic actually happens, they don't even 
they can't even begin to grasp what to do about it. Right. Start making a time capsule, everybody. <laughs> uh, as an online commentator, I'd like to get your opinion. Um, this is just a personal project of mine. What's beyond meta? I feel like even basic media is meta now. Sitcoms are all jokes about jokes. You've got commercials that end up being tied ads. Will we ever get tired of being in on the joke in the same way that realists uh, were a response to romanticism and surrealism was a response to neoclassicism? I know that we're always sort of evolving in the way we create media and the way we uh, consume it, but are we ever going to get out of this sort of self-aware thing that we're right now, uh, in right now? And if we do, what's beyond it? That's a very good question. Um, I I think about that kind of thing all the time. Yeah. And I I don't know, but I do know that I'm kind of enjoying where we are right now okay. in, um, <laughs> in in the meta world. I mean, I, I like the fact that we have entire Marvel films like Ragnarok, where they are able to play with it and make fun of it and just keep winking at the at the camera, winking right. at the audience. Yeah. Um, I kind of love that. And I feel like we are kind of just in this, I think it's also a natural byproduct of, of being so saturated with information, but not necessarily having, you know, created the societal infrastructure for filtering that content. I think that when we have just information coming at you from all over the place and it's your job as an individual to filter it. And obviously a lot of people are really bad at that, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, but it, it, it is kind of, I feel like it's, it's a natural mirror uh, response to a universe where we have just way too much collective shared memefied information but it's part of the reason why i love internet culture i mean i love you know we have absolutely no idea what's going to happen a week from now in terms of uh major stories in terms of things going viral um you know and we have this the fascinating thing about the internet is that we collectively share stories constantly and yeah. i think a lot of people are, are are always hooked on the the negativity of that and there is a lot of negatives but there's also a lot of positives that never get shared that never really get talked about as much we see a lot of alarmism about what's going on in social media but we don't see a lot of the positives and for me growing up in a in a in a world without the internet i didn't have i mean I was born in 79. I didn't have internet and and cell phones until I was already legally an adult. Mm -hmm. And so I remember very clearly what that world was like. I remember, you know, um, not hearing about the Rwandan genocide until three months after it happened, you know. And so we now live in a world where we hear about things real time and we hear about tragedies real time. And then we have to figure out, okay, how do we respond instead of just liking and, and commenting and sharing our outrage? Yeah. And so it, it's, it's, you know, we're in an interesting time and I'm very interested to see what happens next, but I have absolutely no idea. It wasn't so bad. You had the United Paramount Network to get you through that. So I did. <laughs> I, um, there's a, there's a line from one of uh, William Gibson's books uh, where he talks about a certain element of the society that he's describing as being, a cultural experiment on fast forward being viewed by a board researcher. And it's sort of kind of, it's what I think of when I think of what you were describing, the fact that we've never been here before and this thing is not under anybody's control. We don't know. And I'm not trying to be like a doom prophet. I'm just saying we don't know 
like what this will do to society, having so much information being freely shareable. And I think we're seeing uh, one of the effects is something we talked about at the top of the show, people's you know emotional responses to things. And yeah. so I think po- perhaps this meta thing, uh, at least being so popular right now, might be a part of that. And I think the particular, the lead horseman of that apocalypse is the success of a character like Daredevil. Or Daredevil. Every time I talk about Deadpool, I do this. I say Daredevil <laughs> instead of Deadpool. Uh, people who listen to my other podcasts will know that. So anyway, I met Deadpool, um, who's a character who's always been you know, the way that he is. But the fact that people are eating it up so much uh, tells me that I think that you're onto something there. Because Thor does everything in Ragnarok but turn to the camera and go, big wink and so Deadpool just does that he just you know does that and breaks that wall yeah it's all meta everything's meta all day 24 7 um (laughs) one thing that I wanted to examine uh, in this episode is um I'm not sure if it relates to being meta or not but it relates to being inside the story it's the solipsistic nightmare uh the 24th century must be after the invention of the holodeck Picard wakes up in a strange location and his first words are computer freeze program. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's like the Truman show on crack. Like it's right. amazing that he doesn't just punch Aline out like in the first five minutes, you know, this is not my beautiful house. Um, so I just wonder if that has affected and maybe not all Federation citizens have access to holodeck technology, but it's become, I think shorthand on the show for a character that is disoriented. The first thing they do is check if they're in a simulation. And then of course they're not. And we move on, but they check to see if they're in a simulation. That's crazy. Well, you have this is Picard we're talking about, not <laughs> you know, not an not. I mean, Riker would have a completely different response, uh, you know. So you have a very wise man being stuck in this situation in the first place, and so you can tell all of his diplomatic training is is being used here, where he kind of says, "Look, I'm going to ask some questions that might seem strange, but just you know, work with me here. It's going to be okay. I <laughs> that's, promise." Yeah, that's true. That's his sign. That's the scientist part of him. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that like every weird dream you have, do you wake up and say end program or uh, if somebody's breaking up with you, you're like, I just I literally cannot believe this is happening to me. Uh, computer end program freeze program. Um, yeah. And I think it, it actually speaks to a lot of, of about Picard's character that he was able to finally admit that, okay, this is all either in my head or this is something that, you know, is my whole previous life is just gone. And so he at some point has to reckon with that. And, you know, my biggest criticism of The Inner Light is I I think that it should have been a movie. You know, Mm. I mean, I would have, I would, I really want to see a longer version of him, you know, especially those first five years where, he would have had nights where he's just sobbing himself to sleep because he his entire life was gone with no explanation, uh, you know, and, and all of his memories are just uh, he's being told this is all fake. I mean, he's essentially being gaslit right. <laughs> constantly. Oh, that isn't your life. That's just in your head. I mean, that would that would actually be fairly traumatic. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It speaks to the, you know, the episodic nature of TNG that's so different from Discovery, for instance, and why I love Discovery so much, where next episode, Picard is just still Picard. And we don't get to see all of the changes that would have happened to him that would have been natural to be, you know, they bring it up in, uh, in that other episode, uh, Lessons. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, 
they you have so much potential there he would have actually changed so deeply after an experience like that uh he would still be very much himself he would still be very much picard but you know it 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 really talks about the um limitations of a television as it used to be that we really no longer have and that's one of the reasons why i love discovery is that they can carry all these threads through each episode without feeling like they have to just end it and then start over again each week. Yeah. I think that Ron Moore said that the, at the time making episodic TV, they they weren't really thinking about the effects of that. And it wasn't yeah. until they looked back later and went, oh, that would have, yeah, that's right. We should have done something. We got to do it a little bit in lessons, but that would have totally yeah. changed him. I think it serves um, the character going forward because remember, Every time we see Picard after that, he is Picayman. You know, he's not just Picard. But I think right. it it's easy to sort of forget or, or sort of brush under the rug because Picard was already a very, you know, thoughtful, um, emotional person. And so if you add another person who's like him to himself, yes. it will deepen that. But it's not like he totally changes his behavior. Um but yeah, it's just so strange, you know, to have that all taken away. I think the biggest, yeah, I would have loved to have seen it have been a, a movie as well and maybe a little more time him, uh, with him dealing with that. I think the biggest concession that we can get in a show that has to just just go, it's a you know weekly TV show, is that they do spend, when he returns to consciousness on the bridge of the Enterprise, there's, a, I timed it, he spends 30 seconds either not saying anything or just whispering. <laughs> like, you know, he's yeah. literally remembering, he's going, the Enterprise. Right, right. Which yeah. is 30 seconds on TV is an eternity. And the fact that yeah. they said, this is important. This is this guy should get an Emmy. He didn't, uh, but he should get an Emmy. Let's just let this sink in for the character and let the audience realize what is happening to him that he is literally going through. And like you said, it could be a hundred years of time and going, oh, sh yeah, my name is John Picard. That's right. Where, where yeah. am I? I'm back on the Enterprise. Yeah. It's great stuff. Uh, let's talk about Sir Patrick. Um, uh, later on in the show, here's a warning. I'm going to ask you who your favorite captain is. But for now, uh, let's talk about uh, how much we like uh, Pat, uh, Captain Picard. Um, something that I really love about Captain Picard, and it's all down to um, Patrick Stewart as an actor and also to the um, writers of the show, is how far the character came. Um, if you go back and watch those, it's jolting to go back and watch those first two seasons and realize... They didn't know who this guy was. They just knew, you know, he's kind of stuffy uh, because he's got to be the opposite of Riker, who's cool, and uh, Wesley, who's a kid. And like pretty much the defining characteristic we knew about him is that he's uncomfortable around children, which doesn't tell us much about him uh, as a captain or as a man. Yeah, I think I often wonder how much of that was the writers and how much of that was Patrick Stewart's influence on the character. And I, I feel like it must have been a little from column A, a little from column B, um, you know, because I, I forget now the specifics, but I seem to have read news stories over the years uh, about, you know, Stuart pressing for specific things in that he wanted to see in the character yeah. um, or veering them away from decisions that might have they might have made otherwise. Um, but I do think that uh, there is so much like if you follow Patrick Stewart on social media, there's so much about Picard that is within Patrick Stewart, uh, which is a fan's best dream. That's, you know, that often happens if you, sometimes the opposite happens where you meet, you know, a famous person, you're like, Shit, you are so nothing like the, yeah. the character I have of you in my head. Um, 
but I love that that so many of the Star Trek actors are very much, you know, uh, a part of of this humanist world. You know, I mean, uh, not Shatner, absolutely not Shatner. But you know, if you follow a lot of these actors on on Twitter and stuff, they're railing against the Trump administration. Yeah. There was the whole movement um, Trek against Trump that happened right before the election. That was great to see. Right. Yeah. I mean, spoiler. Like I. I, I Patrick Stewart is my favorite uh, Star Trek captain. Okay. Captain Picard is absolutely my favorite Star Trek captain. <laughs> sure. And, you know, Discovery is probably my second favorite series, but only because my nostalgia for TNG is so intense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mine too. Uh, <laughs> and, and like, I, I feel like I just want to shake Star Trek fans sometimes because it is Star Trek's job to change with the times. If we did not have Next Generation and we just had the original series, I probably would not have become a Star Trek fan. Like, I like the original series for what it is. I can appreciate its campiness. I can appreciate where they were in the time and that they were very progressive on a number of issues for the time. But they were also really, you know, there's there's sexism in TOS. There's there's things wrong with it. And if if they had just kept everything tightly, uh, you know, what what people often inaccurately refer to as canon. And not simply, uh, you know, the the vestiges of the time, um, then we would not have as much wonderful Star Trek as we have now. Yeah, I agree. I mentioned earlier that this is a story about stories and the effect that they have on us. And stories must be very important to the people of Catan because they're faced with destruction and they choose not to send a, a time capsule or a note or um, some Chuck Berry into space like we did, but <laughs> they send a totally interactive experience that is simply the simple life of an iron weaver. You know, they could yeah. have sent anything. And even if it was an experience, they could have sent like a multi-part, like this is who we are. Welcome to Catan and yeah. seen the lives of many people, but they, they wanted to send this guy's, life uh, into space. It's a simple life. He has a, a doting w- wife. Um, there's a subplot about a, a planet that might die, uh, but it's not really important to them. Um, and so I just think that that shows that stories are very important to them. Um, it was important for them to tell us that, you know, someone, uh, or it was important that whoever receives it, lives it and experiences it and didn't just read it. And I yes. think, and the episode doesn't get into this, but maybe if it was a feature, it would. I think it might have something to do with what I think is a, a sort of literal tendency in their culture. Um, it might just be like stilted alien writing uh, in the in the probes program, but people seem to speak very declaratively. And I did this, you did that. Um, yeah. And I think for them, uh, they have a storytelling tradition, but it seems like for their culture, the real value of the story would be in actually experiencing it and not somebody just sort of dictating it to you. Yes, absolutely. And maybe they lack imagination um, as a downside of that because they certainly can't seem to extract the idea that they're, they'll all be dead unless they do something about this problem with the planet or the sun. Yeah. Well, they, they mentioned, you know, we've just only begun sending up small missiles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think they kind of knew that the idea of a space program is is way too far off to to save them. Sure. Um, so you know how can we modify this missile? And presumably they must have. Uh, and different cultures, you know, I think that people have actually criticized this episode about you know saying, well, if they have the technology to do this, they would have the technology <laughs> for space travel. And it's like, no, not necessarily. Some cultures have a much more uh, profound. Um, you know, interest in, in their, their 
their technological approach to medical issues, for instance. Sure. And this is this would be a medical thing. This would be medical tech that would enable them to send a probe into space and shoot a something into a brain of an alien <laughs> and, you know, get them to pass out for 30 minutes while they live a, a lifetime. It, it requires willing suspension of disbelief. Oh, well, for sure. All sci-fi does. Yeah. We don't have a space yeah. program because we blew all, all of our money on VR. Right, exactly. But it, it, it does make sense that there would be societies that would value those things more than space travel. Yeah, it reminds me too, I don't remember the exact um, the things that go on in the episode, but there's an episode of the original series called All Our Yesterdays, I think, where there's a nova that's going to destroy a planet. And so the uh, race that lives there sends the, their entire population back to different points in their planet's history. Yeah. And it's like, you guys have time travel, you know, like spaceships? Like, come on. <laughs> Seems weird. Um, I want to talk about uh, something that I mentioned before, which is the purpose and the nature of the simulation, but specifically if uh, Cayman was actually a real person. Sometimes I have uh, crackpot theories or sort of head cannons uh, on our episodes. And I think the implication is clearly that, yes, he was real. Um, it would explain why the life of a guy who wasn't kind some kind of hero or public figure is the one that they want to send because to them he is clearly he seems to be some sort of exemplar for you know the values and ideals that they want to project but it is a simulation what if he was just a, a gestalt like what if he was just their idea of the best guy and we know that they can manipulate you know this isn't just like a brain recording because they all come back at the end and say that that was our play what'd you think um yeah so I wonder if this, if he was an actual real person or if he is just a construction of like, let's make sure that he's uh, kind and make sure that he's smart and let's have him make sure he's got that thing we talked about. You know, he's got that like drive, you know, he's not like the rest of us who let our planet die. Well, I think in, in a way, the, the best way to create a program like this would be to create kind of a blank canvas character mm. and then make sure that the supporting cast around him had those qualities that you mentioned, yeah. right? Because they still want this, this character to behave organically within the simulation. They still want this character to feel like they are very much themselves. They didn't program, you know, Picard's brains, you know, to respond to the, the, the stimuli in, in, in such a specific way. Sure. I think they must have, just created this sort of blank character that had a specific job and specific interests, sure, but that was it. And then let every all the other supporting characters kind of fill in the blanks and steer him in in the in the right way. I mean, if he's if his wife character, for instance, had been you know this sort of disbelieving nag who yelled at him <laughs> right. about you know well this isn't real and 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 your starship isn't real and and you're crazy then he would have had a completely different experience but he wants they want him to be guided through this process so yeah. he was almost sort of surrounded by counselors it's a planet of game designers i think yeah because you have to do the same thing in a game to lead the <laughs> player through the tutorial yeah. uh, that that's uh raises a question for me that what if the wrong person finds this then? Like it basically found the best person uh, that they could yeah. have found, the perfect user. But what if it was Riker? You know, what if it was Worf? Dad, I, I don't want to do uh, be a warrior anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, no son of mine's doing music. Um, yeah. I wonder if it would be different then for everyone if those characters would, as you suggested, um, become different kinds of guides. You know, um, Aline would be a, a Klingon wife, you know, or somebody who would force Worf to go through uh, the story. Yeah. 
Yeah, be- I almost feel like it would be interesting if they actually did deal with this in another series, like have a different ship and a different captain encounter it. I do think they would have, you know, following the reasoning with what they've already created, I do think it would have been written for a leader. I think it would have been written to knock out the most powerful person on the ship that it encounters. And so therefore the qualities of a leader are probably fairly similar culture to culture, right? Like we, we know that by examining the the cultural differences of our own uh, countries and, and subcultures. So I think it would have been designed to, to find the leader of a ship, yeah. Uh, and beyond that, you know, it, I think that each character would have a different response. Yeah. And if it did find somebody who was not in charge, it would just be like a blank screen that says, you know, take me to your leader or yeah. <laughs> not sufficient privileges to view this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also think that like, if it is, uh, well, we know it's, it was constructed. It's a simulation. I wonder if they kind of edited themselves to show themselves at their best. <laughs> like, wow, these, uh, the other villagers are real attractive or, uh, Maybe they uh, came and had a crappy neighbor who didn't give his weed whacker back. You know, they just kind of cut that part out. Like they, they definitely put like their their best face on when they created the simulation. Yeah. Well, so do we. I mean, you mentioned the Voyager record, and we, you know, choose to send them symphonies, and right. yeah. you know, we don't yeah. choose to send <laughs> Donald Trump. You know, his Logan Paul even... videos. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. We sent two hot. Naked golden people on a, on a plaque. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, then uh, parody there, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I want to go back to talking about Picard uh, and his experience a little bit. Uh, I love that Picard is uh, immediately being Picard. Uh, like you mentioned, right away, he's like, this is nuts. And then he's like, okay, yelling's not going to get me what I want. Uh, yeah. I, got a, I got some questions for you. This is a good suit, by the way. Um, and then <laughs> later on, you know, she describes, you know, for like five years, he's going out and he's taking soil samples, which might be him looking for some uh, some sense of artificiality, but leads to him learning that something's going wrong in the soil. You know, so that's a nice yeah. little story element. And he builds a telescope. And I also like the fact that he eventually just plays the flute because he's bored. He's at a La Quinta Inn in Sedona. Um, and the flute, uh, in a, in a great touch from, um, the writer and from the producers of the show shows is sort of like embodies his transition into becoming this character. Cause at first he can't play it. Then yeah. he's playing, uh, Farrah Jaka, uh, which we know is sort of like a little, it's kind of a leitmotif for him in the series. Uh, and eventually he plays, uh, his, his theme at his, um, I believe his son's naming ceremony. And so the flute shows his sort of gradual acceptance of his circumstances. So flute as metaphor is thumbs up for me as far as the show goes. Yeah. I mean, even if you look at, you know, the, obviously they wouldn't have had the song for Jaka, right? So he, to them, he invented that song. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's, it's actually this beautiful way of him to connect with his old memories um, and really, it, it, it again, it totally is an, a testament to the character because it, it would take a very strong person to be able to, you know, compartmentalize his previous life and still try to make the best of his present life. I think that they managed that in part because they genuinely gave him uh, a wife who has a lot of emotional intelligence. She's extremely appealing. You know, she is uh, there to guide him through this. And there's genuine romance and love between them, which is uh, part of the uh, magic of what makes, I think, the episode work so well. Absolutely. There's also, I was put in mind of the sort of dream argument of 
like Descartes or the idea of um, Ziyang say dreaming a man dreaming he's a butterfly or a butterfly dreaming he's a man. Yeah. Um, if they did, I believe that didn't they mention Elon Musk in Discovery? They did. <laughs> so if, they, if this uh, plot uh, found its way to Discovery, they'd have to you know put in a line about how it's like uh, that uh, guy in the 21st century. You know the uh, the the what do you call him? Industrialist said um, that we could all be in a simulation. You know, maybe this is a simulation. <laughs> yeah, a few people have pointed out that Lorca from the the mirror universe brought up Elon Musk, and that doesn't bode well for our society. Oh no! Oh, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> I never thought about it that way. Maybe he was the key to. He was the point of divergence for the mirror universe. Oh, <laughs> he goes bad. Um, I'm glad that you brought up Aline, the character of Aline, um, and I want to talk about her a little bit. Um, like you said, in reference to the original series, that sexism was institutional and just kind of a part of it. And we haven't shaken that completely by the time we reach TNG. And yeah. I um, I think that her representation in this, well, it's 19, what did I say it was? 1991 or two? I should know, I just said it. 1992. It's 1992. So they're not as woke as we are, I guess you'd say. And since yeah. they're not... When they tell a story about a man who's got to figure this out and he's got a supportive wife, there's nothing wrong with having a man figuring things out and having a supportive wife, but they haven't gone around the bend yet of proper and equal representation in stories. And so one sort of slight detraction for me was, yes, they have a connection. It's strong. They, um, they both know each other and they challenge each other, but she is kind of a lady that tells him to pick up his shoes a lot. She is, but she does it in a very commanding way. <laughs> you know, she <laughs> okay. she does it in a very like I'm not going to pick him up. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I'm not picking up your shoes. And and so I think it, you know, there's this idea that feminists or uh strong women aren't um compassionate and aren't loving. And I I I can't stand that idea. You know, so to me this woman is kind of this wonderful um you know, sort of encapsulation of both feminine, of, of the kind of feminism that we should be embracing as science fiction fans, because ultimately, you know, true feminism means that if you want to be a supportive wife, you can be that, yeah. but be that for your own reasons, be that because it brings you joy, be that because it makes you happy and don't be that because that's what you were told. Mm -hmm. You know, so this is clearly a society that's very similar to Earth yeah. in, in many, many ways, which is, is just sort of luck in terms of Picard's reasoning. I think it would be yeah. interesting to see this. And it may even be that the culture itself, I mean, I was, I was rewatching this last week and I was like, it may even be that the culture itself, that they didn't even physically look like humans, but the program was designed to make them look like humans. Okay, sure. Yeah. Because that's the captive that they took and that if they took a Klingon captive or if they took, they would actually be able to absorb the, um, you know, the, the appearance and the uh, basic cultural mannerisms of that enough to change within themselves while still projecting their own distinct society. Okay. That's my theory. <laughs> I think that kind of dovetails into my theory too, I think as well about it being sort of a construction. Yeah. I'm trying to, I'm now I'm imagining like an octopus alien with Richard Reilly's mustache, which is a little weird. <laughs> um, I, I think those are really good comments. And I like the fact that 
she's her qualities like you said before um see now i'm getting closer to it them all being fake people and never having lived but uh real or no her qualities do help his transition because she's impossibly patient with him and it also helps that the scenario is that he's recovering from an illness yeah and so there is a element of rebuilding um his faculties you know as uh, just as an individual but also rebuilding sort of a trust in between them and so yeah that's um that was really wise on the part of the creators of the simulation uh, whether they constructed that or used a real element from uh, Cayman's life and I also kind of like the fact I guess I'm not like feminism shaming her but but I did like the fact that um that I don't think she makes an ultimatum so much but she does come to say to come to him and say like look, I don't got all the time in the world. Like, you know, you can just, yeah. you can be with me or you can do your own thing. But I think there's the implication that like, maybe I could just, I could just move on and, and do my own thing and find somebody who wants what I want. Yeah. I think it says a lot of the, of the culture that, you know, in many ways, if, if they were going to do this to somebody, it's actually a terrible thing to do to somebody. Right. Oh, ab- but, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they're, they're, they're doing it for the only moral reason that, that actually justifies it. You know, like it actually the the ends in this in this particular scenario, the end does justify the means. And he recognizes that Picard doesn't wake up angry that his, you know, that 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 this this happened to him. He gets it. He, you know, reflects on being the sole survivor who knows this uh, community intimately. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that there is um, kind of this aspect of um you know, they, they created this, this, this simulation, but they were smart enough to embed into it some, some benchmarks, I think, where they said, okay, well, after it's been five years, have the wife push him a little bit, okay, you know, sure. but, but give him five years. Cause that's actually, that's actually a pretty good amount of time, um, to, to sort of brainwash somebody into thinking that their previous life was just this elaborate dream. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and that's yeah. actually very kind of them. So even though they're doing this terrible thing to this character for, for very good justifiable reasons, <laughs> they're, they're being as gentle with him as they possibly Five years can. then hit him with the baby talk. Right. That's wow. Okay. We should have been talking about the nefarious <laughs> creators of this simulation <laughs> this entire time. Uh, yeah, I think I wouldn't stoop to calling the Catanians egomaniacal sadists but there are downsides to what they're trying to do but we do see by the end of the episode that you're right you know the effect is positive i wish we'd explored it more something else that and i'm not telling anybody who has seen this episode anything they don't know but just reiterating some of the amazing moments the fact that after he gets up and he's going to go with dr crusher to go get checked out and we come back in for the last scene of the episode we don't know at this point you are eight or nine however old you were 13 you said um 13. watching the episode we we know sci-fi but we don't know what's going on here we don't does he remember it will it fade like a dream like what's happening uh does he remember being captain picard and without yeah. them without having dr crusher um sadly um she doesn't get a lot of lines in the episode but without having her give a robert forster psycho monologue about all the things that have happened to captain picard it's all just suggested by action and oblique dialogue so yes. he's standing in his room and he's and he is kind of looking over things, but he's not even moving much. And the door chime goes off and it takes him a second to remember what that sound is for. Yes. Which is like, oh, so yeah. Great. Yeah. 
And uh, Riker comes in, he explains, of course, you know, the the last sort of days or moments of the probe, like what that's all about, and gives him the flute. And we can infer from Riker's, the look on Riker's face, that he knows the significance. Sure. Like, we don't know whether a couple of hours have passed or whether a couple of days have passed since this happened, but we know by the look on Riker's face that... He has been informed that Picard has told everyone, I just lived a hundred years on a different planet. Yeah. And <laughs> there's a kind of, this isn't a criticism, it's just commentary, but there's a kind of look, uh, I'm not sure if it's from Riker or from Jonathan Frakes at the very end of that scene where he fin- he gives him the flute and Picard, uh, Stuart as Picard, is already wrapped up in looking at the box. And then <laughs> Frakes kind of does this like, the stage is yours kind of as he yeah. t- a turn like yeah. get ready for something big audience and he goes back and li- like i said you know we don't at this point really know and he pulls the flute out and he begins playing his song and it's that moment that we realize he remembers everything yeah and that's wonderful but it's also he's devastated because he's yeah. lost all of that yeah. uh, forever and he never had it in the first place it's uh, i think about movies that play with these ideas um eternal sunshine of the spotless mind comes up um, immediately which is always about memory and experiences and just the melancholy that comes from not having uh, nostalgia literally the pain of the past yes exactly yeah i i do think that that if if i had a wish list for this episode um you know it's that they would have maybe dealt with it in the second the, the episode that followed it, yeah, you know, instead of going right into something completely different, that they would have had at least enough awareness to say, you know, we should really deal with this in the next episode and have him sit down with Troy sometimes and <laughs> talk about his life yeah. and shed a single tear before he moves on because it's such a, a, a huge break in, you know, he goes from this episode to the next one. Yeah, and, and they go meet uh, Mark Twain. Yeah, they go meet Mark Twain. <laughs> that's the moment to meet mark twain after all this happens (laughs) so it's you know it is it's it's such a it's it's a an artifact of of 90s television thinking but it is as a fan it's like oh i just i want to see that episode i know that exists yeah of him talking to troy and him tashing it out with therapists and counselors and coming to terms with it but all we get is this flute solo and we have to as fans just read as much as we can into that into that flute performance and know what it means and understand the gravitas of it and enjoy it but yeah yeah you want more uh bringing the holodeck back i mean he could literally go to the holodeck and make a recreation of Catan and then sort of experience it that way if he really wanted to but that probably wouldn't be healthy i like to that Picard wrote a book because he would have had to share this knowledge, right? Well, that's and that's the whole point of the probe. Like, if he just experiences the entire thing and we never see him tell anybody else in the show, it's <laughs> like that was the whole point. That's why you went yeah. through that. I think Gendel did uh, work on her. He pitched a sequel uh, with to this episode, which I think it's probably it stands well on its own. I think, but um, in the sequel, they would find some another kind of probe or ship, and it would contain. Um, Aline and some people from somehow they found a way to launch like a cryo ship off planet. And yeah. the the hook, of course, before the te- uh, the tease before the um, theme is they crack it open and she's like, who are you? Uh, yeah. So it's kind of a Jordy Leah Brahms kind of thing. But it's like, you know, the show did that already. Yeah. 
Uh, he did produce a comic sequel to this, and it used to be available on his website, and I can't find it now, but it's um, a continuation of Rumination by Picard on his experiences in comic, like web comic form. So huh. good luck finding that. I did not that know that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've, I've, never, I've never gotten into, I've never delved into the comic book Star Trek world. Mm. <laughs> So that's not uh, that's not somewhere that I have yet had the courage to go. So I, I'm worried about going down a rabbit hole. So I've never I've never <laughs> gone there before. We actually have a supplemental show that deals with Star Trek comics. So maybe you can nice. check that out and get some ideas. Well, I think we both agree that it's a great episode, but we're open to criticizing it because we are reasonable people. Yes, and I will consider tackling this on Medium. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, I got to check back. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me to remind you. Now that we're at the end of the show, uh, let's talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? And the beating up can be intellectual. <laughs> well, I mean, we already know Picard. Yes. Uh, but why? I think that I don't think there are a lot of characters like Picard in series, in, t in television. Mm. I don't. I don't. I, I, I struggle to think about a similar character who had this sort of Gandalf-like <laughs> quality. You know, it's such a great idea. You know, to come up with this, like, hey, let's put Gandalf in a Star Trek uniform. I, thought, I feel like that conversation. The Doctor was uh, space Gandalf. Well, which Doctor? Which Doctor? No, I mean the Doctor. <laughs> yeah, no, oh, right, right, right. right. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, Doctor like, Who. Right. But even even that, I mean, maybe just because the, the doctor switches uh, actors so often, yeah. we don't have that same deeply endearing sense of who this character is. Um, but again, I mean, it might have been that, that I feel that way because TNG came out when I was a kid and it was this very formative thing. I have described on Geek's Galaxy at Star Trek as my third and best parent. And <laughs> I, I feel like if I ever met Patrick Stewart, I would have to calm myself down because I would be a blubbering asshole. I would be like, <laughs> I don't want to freak you out, but you were my dad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm sure he hears that all the time, but he's like, he's like the ultimate space dad. Yeah. Uh, wow. Okay. Well, I have to retire that question now, I guess. <laughs> I My personal theory is that, you know, Picard is a reaction or a commentary on Kirk and every other Star Trek captain has just been uh, a reaction to Picard. That is entirely possible. I like this theory. Yeah. Um, everybody that came after, uh, who, um, you know, I love Cisco and Janeway and other captains, but I think in trying to answer, you know, a, an original question, they kind of nailed it. They kind of got the perfect answer. And so every other captain has had to be some sort of variation or reaction yeah. to that. Yeah. And I do love that when they, you know, they, they kind of established a pattern when they did come out with TNG where they said, because I think a lot of shows would have thought, oh, well, we have to make a Kirk-like captain. Well, no, we're going to make a we're going to make the anti-Kirk. We're going to make a, a character who's completely opposite in so many ways uh, to Kirk. And so the fact that they did that means that other series had that ability to do it too, yeah. and and to to branch out and be completely different from the other series, which I love. Sure. Well, let's see. Um, you will receive a commission and the rank of ensign in our Starfleet. What department on the <laughs> ship do you work in? Oh, God. Uh, I feel like, actually, and this, this goes back to why I love Discovery so much. Let me, let me answer the question this way. Sure. The, the character that I most identify with in the Star Trek universe is Tilly. 
Okay. Because I was homeschooled and I had to be socialized in my twenties, and I am awkward <laughs> as fuck. Like you can you can take the 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 girl out of homeschool, but you can't take the homeschool out of the girl. Sure. You know what I'm saying? And <laughs> I I feel like I would be Tilly in that universe. I don't know where I would work. I don't think it's more it's it's necessarily as important where I would work. And as as somebody with an art degree. I don't even think that there's room for me on on a, on anything but a galaxy class starship. They would have artists on on board the the Enterprise D, but I'm not so sure about some of the other ships. So, but I think I would I would absolutely be the Tilly character. I mean, you could be on a, sort of a like a experience program or like just a, you know you haven't decided on your major type thing, but you're here to yeah. kind of try out different departments and stuff like that. Yeah. Go go carefully with that uh, with that Starfleet. Um, well, uh, Engine Missioner, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at at EIST Pod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Probably my Facebook, which is facebook.com slash Michener, M-I-C-H-E-N-E-R. That's great. And is there anything coming up for you that you want to tell us about? Yes, but I don't want to say what it is. Oh, so for okay. those interested in the objects that I make in my spare time, <laughs> sure. you can go to sarahjasonmakers.com or bardsoap.com to see our new product release, which should hopefully be coming out within a month. Well, thanks again for joining me. Thank you. I had a good time. Me too. And we are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. Hailing frequencies closed.